Are you headed to GSX? Security Management is. We're sharing a special bonus episode of Security Management Highlights for every day of GSX, starting off with a security history lesson from this year's host city, Dallas, Texas. I am your host, Brendan Howard, and today we speak to Stephen Fagan, the museum curator for the Sixth Floor Museum, which is housed in the historic Book Depository, where Lee Harvey Oswald perched with a rifle overlooking the motorcade of President John F. Kennedy Jr. in Dealey Plaza, November 22, 1963. We talked to Fagan about how the assassination that followed changed the world of security and close protection. And he tells us about the work collecting and preserving first-person accounts from Dallas police officers, detectives, Secret Service agents, and even the brother of Jack Ruby. Ruby himself shot dead Lee Harvey Oswald before a trial ever happened. But first, a message from this episode's sponsor, Fiscal Note, an intelligence company focused on political and business risk. So you can't afford to manually monitor everything that occurs across your industry and network of relationships. Luckily, Fiscal Note just launched a new tool to provide you with a complete picture of the risks to your organization and their real-time consequences. Fiscal Note Risk Connector flags all connections that could impact your organization up to the fifth party, including subsidiaries, customers, tangentially connected suppliers, and partnerships. Risk Connector covers everything from compliance and vendor security to labor violations and public trust. You can learn more and get a personalized demo of the risks you may not even know exist to your organization at FiscalNote.com. Now, back to the Sixth Floor Museum. Stephen, we know how this event shook a generation of Americans and others around the world but how did the assassination affect security professionals boots on the ground? I've had the great honor of getting to interview more than a dozen agents from um, the 1960s. And it's interesting, one of them, a guy named Jerry Blaine, he described he and his colleagues as pre-technology agents. And that really is true because the image we have today of the Secret Service with those little, you know, those earbuds and the, you know, they didn't have radios at the time of the Kennedy assassination. They used hand signals. Um, They didn't have computer databases to rely upon these agents. Jerry Blaine, Clint Hill, and others who were on the White House detail, when they would travel to a city, they would have index cards with a with a person's photograph and information on the back about persons of interest in that city who maybe had made threats on the president's life or something like that. And and they wore sunglasses so that they could scan the crowd easier and use peripheral vision and things like that. But it's it was uh, very primitive compared to um, the way the Secret Service operates today, and it was a much smaller group. And that's one of the direct impacts of the Kennedy assassination is uh, enlarging the budget of the Secret Service, allowing for more agents. There's there's about 10 times more Secret Service agents today than there was at the time of the assassination in 63. And is that because there is, after events like this, there is a newly perceived threat? So security professionals talk a lot about there's reactivity by the world. So security professionals are always saying 
these risks are here, these risks are here, and then something truly terrible happens, the assassination of the United States president, and all of a sudden there's money and resources for it. Well, certainly the Secret Service changed uh, fundamentally as a result of the assassination. Uh, Going back to the Warren Commission official government investigation in 1964, they concluded in their report that there were lapses and shortcomings in terms of presidential security. For one thing, there was no protocol uh, for the Secret Service to interact with other government agencies. And very famously, the FBI in Dallas was well aware of Lee Harvey Oswald, this disgruntled ex-Marine who had defected to the Soviet Union. But they didn't communicate to the Secret Service planning the presidential parade route that this individual, Lee Harvey Oswald, worked in a building on the route. And so the Secret Service had no idea who Oswald was. So that was something the Warren Commission uh, zeroed in on. But also, Just in terms of presidential security, it was very lax by today's standards, not because the agents weren't doing their job. They were following protocol and procedure. It's just that protocol and procedure was was fundamentally different. Uh, For example, you know, uh, Kennedy, like presidents before him, rode in open-top convertibles uh, in direct contact with the crowd. I mean, there are stories about how Kennedy was able to lean out of the car and shake hands with people in Dallas uh, when the uh, when the motorcade would slow down early in the parade. So he was very, very close to people, and he and Jacqueline Kennedy were completely exposed. And then when you get into the heart of downtown, Main Street, I mean, about 200,000 people turned out to greet the president that day. And when you look at some of the photographs in our collection, you see Every office building, people hanging out of windows, people crowding the awnings of buildings, people on the roofs of buildings looking down. It's the Secret Service did not have the the uh, manpower to secure all of those buildings, do background checks on people in those buildings. Uh, and so after the assassination, of course, that changed. Never again would you see a president ride through a dense urban environment or really anywhere in an open-top convertible. Um, the, the limousine itself is a great example of how things fundamentally changed. The, uh, the Continental limousine that Kennedy was using that day, which was a custom-built presidential limousine, very fancy, uh, cost... Uh, about $200,000 in 1960, 1960s money. After the assassination, it was stripped down to its metal frame and rebuilt, reinforced with titanium doors and a permanent bulletproof hard shell top. And it went back into presidential service weighing about 2,000 pounds more because of all the security, the armor plating and everything yeah. that had been added to the vehicle. And that car, the Kennedy car, went on to, or at least the frame of the car, went on to be used by Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, and it was finally retired during Jimmy Carter's presidency. And today, that limousine, what's left of the Kennedy car uh, and and all of the security added afterwards uh, is in the Henry Ford Museum in Michigan. There are certain places that are kind of the scenes of internationally recognized crime and violence and war. And that one, you know, kind of unassuming building is now kind of how it is. How does that affect, does, does that building feel different from other buildings, if you've worked in other museums that are built from the ground up, just we bought some land, we put a museum here, as opposed to a building where not just is historically important, but something terrible happened. There's kind of an emotional resonance that hangs with it. What is that like? How does that kind of fuel the energy for the people who work there and the people who come there and the people who kind of naturally kind of made these pilgrimages there? 
Yeah. Uh, the the former Texas School Book Depository Building, which is where I'm at right now, our museum is up on the sixth and seventh floors of the building. Um, we have a, a vast collection of, of more than 90,000 objects. And we always say this building is the most important artifact. Uh, when the museum was developed way back in the 80s, there was a deliberate attempt to maintain the look and feel of the original warehouse space on the sixth floor. The original wooden structural beams are in place. The uh, Southeast corner sniper's perch area is preserved behind glass and it's reconstructed based on the Dallas police crime scene photographs. You really do get a sense of history uh, when you tour a, a space like this. Dealey Plaza itself is this remarkable site of, of, of history and memory. And uh, it amazes people actually who have seen this site, this building, in photographs, in home movies, in documentaries over the last 60 years to, to be here in person and see how familiar the uh, the site looks. It's much smaller in person than most people realize because photography has a way of expanding the plaza. The pictures, yes, they make it look all very big. Yeah, but it's a very quaint vehicular park at the at the edge of downtown Dallas, but it is permeated with this sense of history. And I, I see it every day. You know, uh, inevitably, people wander the grass on either side of Elm Street, and they look around as if somehow, you know, the answer is still there. And you see people with their eyes, you know, tracing these different triangulations of crossfire. And I see it in the museum as people go to the windows and stare out at the landscape of the plaza. And it's remarkable that whatever... Um, worldview they bring with them to that window is what they see out that window. If they if they believe Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone, suddenly the plaza becomes this very small space, 88 yards from the window to the fatal shot. They see it absolutely possible that one man could fire off uh, three shots in six to eight seconds. But if they come in with this belief that there's more to the story, then you see a, a gunman on the grassy knoll and uh, on the roof of the Dallas County Records building, you see a triangulation of crossfire and it makes perfect sense. Um, that's one of the remarkable things I think about this museum. By not taking a position on the assassination, by letting people have that experience, they can come to their own conclusions and um, think about the uh, perhaps decades of personal research they've done, whether it's dipping into books or magazines or watching Oliver Stone's film, JFK, or documentaries, they get to uh, experience that history themselves in the historic space that looks remarkably like it did on November 22nd, 1963. Do people in security come to do research and study what happened there? Um, I'm wondering, because you mentioned things about the car and the Secret Service changed. Did what happened there have a more profound than just the federal agents guarding the president? Did it have a wider impact, do you think, on the world of security, both in public and private? Mm. Well, I can certainly say that it, it affected uh, like the Dallas Police Department here, here locally. Um, it's interesting. Most people don't realize this, but uh, in 1963, it was not a federal crime to murder the president of the United States. So Lee Harvey Oswald, after his arrest, he fell under the jurisdiction of the Dallas Police Department. He would have been tried by the state of Texas had he lived to stand trial. Uh, and that is another thing that changed after the assassination in uh, 1965. Congress passed legislation making it a federal crime to murder, attempt to murder, to kidnap the president or the vice president. So that changed as far as uh, the way crimes like this uh, are handled, will be handled in the future. Um, the 
the Dallas police, of course, because Lee Harvey Oswald was shot and killed by a nightclub owner in their basement on live television, certainly came under a great deal of international criticism and scrutiny uh, after the Kennedy assassination. And that affected officers on a deeply personal level. I I remember interviewing uh, a police officer years ago who got choked up because he was telling me that not long after the shooting, within a few months, he got called out on a domestic disturbance. And um, he remembers the uh, the husband, the abusive spouse, like taunting him, saying, "If they can't protect Kennedy, you know, how do you think they're going to be able to protect you?" He says to his to his wife, and so it's interesting to hear stories like that about the impact, uh, not just on the the security aspects of protecting a visiting dignitary, but just the on a personal level how these officers were impacted, even if they had nothing to do uh, with the president's visit. Do people talk about in the oral histories? that the assassination, again, made them feel less safe and made them feel like something had changed about their relationship with public officials or something had changed when they go outside, they think differently now that if the most one of the most powerful people in the world can be killed by a single person, you know, who's safe? Does safety and that feeling of insecurity come up in these things? That happens all the time. In fact, in the oral history that I recorded with my dad a few years ago, he had celebrated his 11th birthday the day before the Kennedy assassination. And he told me quite solemnly that that was the day that his family finally started locking their front doors. I mean, there was a sense of safety and security. I mean, a a holdover from the 1950s that was extinguished immediately when those shots were fired in Dealey Plaza. For so many people, the Kennedy assassination was this watershed moment that ushered in so much of the violence and skepticism uh, of the 1960s, the deaths of of Malcolm X and, and Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, uh, escalation of the Vietnam War, the violence associated with civil rights, whether real or imagined within the totality of that turbulent 60s experience, the Kennedy assassination really stands uh, as a bookend that, that, that launched that era. And um, oh yeah, uh, I would say one of the most significant themes that runs throughout our 2,500 recordings is this idea of, of lost innocence, of everything changing. And that is hopefully something that um, by recording these stories now before they're lost forever, we're able to build these bridges of communication between generations so that people do have an understanding that that for baby boomers and others, the Kennedy assassination was as traumatic an international event as September 11th, 2001 uh, was for uh, for Gen X and, and, and millennials. So th- there is, I think, a theme there that, that we see very often of young people feeling this sense of loss and insecurity uh, because their whole world uh, exploded on the day of the assassination. That's a lot of darkness, but there's some light in the museum too. An exhibit there currently is exploring the life, death, and legacy of JFK. And that is it for the latest episode of Security Management Highlights. A big thank you to our sponsor, Fiscal Note, and thanks to our guest, Stephen Fagan. If you're interested in reading more about these topics, check out the links in the show notes. If you got excited about something here, share this with your friends inside and outside of security management, because the world needs to know how vital and awesome this field is. And leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. We would appreciate it. You can find us at sm.asisonline.org. And hey, 
be safe out there.